This morning our scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, starting in verse 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 16 is where we will be this morning. Last week we finished chapter 15, and at the end of chapter 15 we found that Paul and Barnabas had separated, and we talked a little bit about how Christians, uh, what, what happens when Christians disagree, and uh, we won't rework that whole passage, but what we find is that Paul and Barnabas separate, and Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and they divide up the territory that they would have covered, and off they went. And we come to chapter 16, and, and as we said last week, that Luke's emphasis is on Paul. And so the account that we find is the account of the Apostle Paul here, not the account of Barnabas and John Mark. And so as we begin chapter 16, we begin uh, looking at what, what could be called, or what is called, Paul's second missionary journey. You may remember we talked about this before, but in chapters 13 and 14, we see his first journey. Chapters, the end of chapter 15 through 18 is his second journey. And then 18, the end of 18 into 21 is his third journey. So our emphasis this morning and the next few weeks will be on his second journey. And uh, a map that could just help us kind of orient a little bit, you see there on uh, your right the, in the highlighted spot that says the starting point there in Antioch is where he began. And as we begin uh, tracking Paul's journey here, we're going to see God's guidance in Paul's life and in his ministry. We're going to see it through uh, his ministry team and through his missionary territory. Now, maybe you can remember a time uh, when the next steps in your life seemed uncertain. Uh, maybe a door that you uh, wanted to go through closed. Maybe it was a door that you thought should have been opened. Maybe it was a good idea. Maybe it was a godly idea. Maybe it was something that you thought God should have opened, and yet it remained closed. Your timing and God's timing just didn't seem to be in sync. Maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you can remember that time, or maybe that time is right now for you. Maybe for some of you this morning, there is an issue, an area, um, a question, something about the future, something about what is next for you. Or if you're in neither one of those categories, maybe this will all be preparatory for you. Because uh, as is the Christian life, uh, moments come where we need to know what to do next. What is the next step? What does God want for me? 
So as we think about God guiding Paul this morning, we can think about our own lives as well, about our decisions, about how we navigate the choices that we make and how God still guides. Pastor Chris read for us from, read for us from verses starting at verse 6, but we're going to start at verse 1. So look at verse 1 with me. And Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. So as they begin their journey, we find out that Paul comes in reverse order of the, the cities that he had visited on his first journey. And this was his, his uh, plan from the, from the uh, inception of this second journey, that he would go back and visit the churches, and he'd do so in reverse order. So if you look back into chapter 13 and 14, you see how he came home. And he came home seeing Lystra, then Derby, And so he goes Derby, then Lystra, as you could see on a map, why that would make sense. And as he gets there, um, he gets to Lystra and he meets, uh, that's the journey there. He meets a young man, uh, maybe even a teenager at this point, named Timothy. And he goes on to give a bit of a description about Timothy. We learn that he was a disciple. That means that he was a Christian. Uh, we know from Paul's letter to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, two of the, the epistles of the pastoral epistles of Paul later on in the New Testament, that Timothy's mother and his grandmother were both Christians. And it's likely that they, as well as Timothy, became Christians during Paul's first visit to Lystra. This would seem likely, maybe five years or so earlier, again, back in chapter 14. So he was a disciple, he's a Christian, but we also know that he was of mixed heritage. It says here that his father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. Uh, the father, being an unbeliever, did not have his son circumcised. Jewish uh, families of Jewish uh, heritage would have their children circumcised. Here we find out that he was not of full Jewish descent. Therefore, he was not um, circumcised. We'll come back to that in a second. Look into verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, kind of that area of, of uh, that neck of the woods. He had a good testimony. Now, later again in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, and he gives a qualification for an elder and one of the qualifications for an elder is that he must be well thought of by outsiders, which means he needs to have a good testimony. He needs to have the character of, of having good relationships with people, even those outside of the church. Throughout Paul's other letters, we, we learn that Timothy would become basically Paul's new protege. Uh, he would basically become the, the, the replacement for John Mark. As, as Paul's special assistant. He would be a co-laborer, uh, kind of his, his right-hand man, his co-worker in the gospel, he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. He'd become his spiritual son several times. Paul calls him just that. Uh, my beloved and faithful child, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Timothy, my true uh, my true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1. Or Timothy, my beloved child, 2 Timothy chapter 1. So this is what uh, Timothy comes to, to mean 
uh, to Paul. He was a good guy. He was a young guy. He was someone who knew Jesus. Um, he wanted to follow Jesus. And Paul wanted him to come along. Look at verse 3. And we see here what Paul wanted. But then we also see this kind of controversial determination made by Paul. Verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew his father was a Greek. So Paul wanted him to, to join the team. Right? So it was just him and uh, Silas, and he wanted him to join the team. Uh, but uh, being part Jew and part Greek, which meant he was not um, circumcised. However, being part Jew and part Greek also gave him this opportunity to have um, an opportunity to get into both cultures very easily. He had access to both cultures, would be particularly helpful in, in a missionary work. But before they leave, what Paul decides to do is to have Timothy circumcised. Now, you might say, why are we even talking about circumcision? That's kind of awkward. Um, this, is, this is strange. Maybe, maybe it doesn't make any sense. Well, the only reason that we want to talk about this is because in chapter 15, there was a decision that was made concerning circumcision. Uh, the Jews believed, or many Jews believed, that circumcision was required in order to be a Christian. That in order for someone to, to become part of the people of God, they had to become, basically had to become a Jew. You had to go through this ritual of circumcision and you had to obey the law. You had to adhere to the law. You had to become a Jew in order to be part of the people of God. Well, in chapter 15, as we already looked at this, but in chapter 15, that was debunked. Right? There, was a, there was a council that took place in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas were part of this. And they, they reasoned together and they concluded that, that no, in fact, that is not how someone becomes a Christian. The, the way that someone becomes a Christian is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? That's how you become a Christian. It's not by doing something, something external. It's not by doing something of any sort of obedience or adherence to any sort of rules or regulations. So then we ask, well, then why did Paul have him circumcised? Doesn't that kind of defeat what he just advocated for? He just said you don't have to be circumcised. And now this one who wasn't circumcised, he has having circumcised. Why would he do that? Isn't that undermining his argument or his position? They just concluded it wasn't necessary. So why would he do this? Well, the answer is that it's not undermining his position at all. Although circumcision was not required for Christians to become a Christian, Paul proceeded to have Timothy circumcised. Look at it in verse 3. Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Which means they, they all knew that he was not circumcised already. So because of, or another translation would say, out of consideration for. So the choice to do this was not about salvation. Right? That wasn't the argument back then either. In chapter 15, it wasn't that, that circumcision itself was wrong. Or obeying the law was wrong. That's not what they were saying. What they were saying was, circumcision and obeying the law as a means of salvation, is wrong. You, you cannot obey the law good enough to be saved. That's not how this works. That's not how salvation works. The choice was not about salvation. It was about fitness for service. One commentator 
Theologian John Stott says this, what was necessary for acceptance with God was advisable. Let me, re- let me re-say that. What was not necessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. Meaning, yes, you don't have to, get, have to be circumcised for salvation. However, there is reason that Paul would do this for Timothy. Now, this didn't stop um, those in the Bible. They call them Judaizers in the Bible. Uh, those people who opposed Paul. It, they didn't, this didn't stop them from accusing Paul that he was preaching circumcision now. Uh, oh, oh, okay, now you're preaching circumcision. Now you're saying we have to be. Now, now you, you go ahead and, and circumcise Timothy. Now you're saying we must be circumcised in order to be part of the body of Christ. And Paul deals with that in the book of Galatians. We also see that he deals differently with a man named Titus. Titus was, was a Greek. He was a Gentile, fully. No Jewish anything in him. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says no. He doesn't need to be circumcised. Why? Because circumcision does not correlate to salvation. Having him circumcised would have contradicted the, the liberty that a Gentile has in Christ. Paul didn't want anything to prevent the ministry. This is the point. The reason that he, he went ahead with the concession to have him circumcised was so there would be no stumbling block. So the Jews wouldn't say, yeah, but he's not actually a Jew. Or yeah, but he's not even circumcised. So that he, he would have access into the synagogue with Paul and Silas. See, the, the absence of circumcision could have indicated to the Jews that Timothy had rejected Judaism. So what Paul's doing is legitimizing Timothy in the eyes of the Jewish people. Now, some of you would say, well, who cares what they think? Who cares what anybody thinks? But Paul was being strategic here. Paul was saying, I'm not doing it for, for the sake of their approval. I'm doing it so that we can have effective ministry. There are concessions that Christians can make in order that we may have more effective ministry. Paul was demonstrating what one what one pastor calls missiological flexibility. Now that sounds really fun, but here's what he's saying. He says, he means this, that there's a flexibility in, in how we go about the mission. Not the message, but the mission. Meaning the way we do something can have lots of different looks, but the what doesn't change. See, Paul, Paul was very active in Understanding who his audience was and appropriately dealing with them. Or he says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Earlier in that passage, he says, to the Jew I became a Jew. To the Greek I became a Greek. Basically, I'm going to do whatever it's necessary in order to have an opportunity to share the gospel. Paul was big on concessions for the sake of the gospel. He adapted to different audience without altering the gospel. Another commentator, Tony Morita, says that if you need to wear a yarmulke to speak to um, a a Jew, then, then wear it. If you need to sit on the floor to speak to a Muslim, then 
sit on the floor. If you need to wear a particular type of robe in a village in order to address the unreached, then put on the robe. If you need to abstain from certain foods, abstain from the foods. Do not put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. Amen? Amen is right. And so the question then for us is, what are the stumbling blocks that we knowingly or maybe unintentionally have put up? What are the things that we're saying to a non-believer that you have to, you have to become like us? You got to look like us. You got to dress like us. You got to sit like us. You got to talk like us. You got to use the same words that we use, right? What are the things that in our mind or in our hearts that we have raised to this level of saying, if you don't X, then you can't be part of us? What is the non-essentials that we've made essential? Paul's saying, that the only thing that should be the stumbling block is the gospel itself. That alone is the stumbling block. Paul was um, showing great wisdom here, great care for the Jewish people, great love for them in, in this. And Timothy, in response, was showing a lot of grace that he would go along with it as well. So we ask the question again, what are the stumbling blocks that we have placed to the gospel? It ought not to be personal preferences. It ought not to be church cultures or political partisanship. It ought not to be social standards or norms. Those are not the things that should get in the way of someone knowing about Jesus. The gospel alone is the stumbling block. Well, back to Timothy. We also know that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, that Paul has him ordained and then commissioned, and then off they go. Pick it up in verse 4. And they went on their way, through the cities, and they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Okay, this is again back to the decision in chapter 15 that circumcision and adherence to the law was not required for salvation. And what Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, and now Timothy were doing is they were going around, they were delivering that message. They were telling people about this, this decision that was made in Jerusalem. Verse 5, uh, Luke offers another a summary of the gospel growth that was happening. Periodically in this account, we, we'll see it multiple times. But um, Paul will make this, this kind of very short statement about how, how the gospel is on the move. And you see it in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. It's beautiful, right? And we're, we're however many years into the, the expanse of the gospel, and, and Luke is, is stressing again that this thing is still moving. It, this still is still expanding. The, the gospel is still spreading. The kingdom is advancing. People are coming to know him, increasing, and they're being strengthened or, or made strong or made firm in their faith. We use the language around here of more and better based on that verse. Verses 6 through 10 uh, go on to detail the, the next leg of their journey as God opened their way. Look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Here we're finding that God has opened up new territory, or is going to open up new territory for, uh, for Paul. When Luke says he went through the, the region, uh, this is t- said to be maybe a 220-mile trek that would have taken somewhere around two to three weeks at least. 
Right? This was no little walk in the park or a little run on your treadmill. Like this is 220-mile trek, and the, 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 the region, um, the geography, the topography would not have been easy, as we've noted uh, in his first journey. But Paul's interest here, we find, is not just about starting churches. That, that's good. And we ought to have uh, concern about that, about seeing churches planted and people coming to know Jesus. But Paul was also very much concerned about those churches being grounded in the faith and growing, strengthening those churches, seeing them mature in Christ. It's one thing to start a church. It's another thing for that church to actually grow. So as they go through this region, they find out that they're forbidden to go into Asia. Uh, Asia here is sometimes referred to Asia Minor, and so you can see kind of would, would be to, uh, to the west of where they were, um, or what we call modern-day Turkey. Uh, in this area, we also would find cities like Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamos, Thyatira. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll probably maybe have heard of some of those cities, right? They're actually some pretty important cities. Uh, there are actually a number of cities that, that uh, eventually the gospel comes to and churches are planted and Paul has a ministry there and, and other people have ministries in those cities. But this wasn't the time they were going to be planted. That they were denied or they were prohibited from going into Asia to speak a word. Uh, the Holy Spirit had, had forbidden them to speak. Um, sometimes even our good ideas and maybe we should put good in, in air quotes here, uh, our good ideas are not always in God's timing, right? Uh, we might look at that map and think, man, that, that sounds like a good place that he should go. Those are, those are good cities. I mean, there's people who don't know Christ. Why, why not go further to the West? Well, he's prevented, prevented from going, and so they go, they go north, verse 7. So they headed up to Mysia and attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And so we can see the, the trek continues as they were prevented from going into Bithynia. You see that here. So they're, they're headed north, and they're prevented from going all the way to Bithynia. You can't really see there that there's a, a uh, a break there in the region, but, but before they got to Bithynia, they, they were prevented from going there. And, and we are not told why. They say, well, why? Why weren't they allowed to go into Asia? Why weren't they allowed to go to Bithynia? And what, what sense is there to make of that? Uh, what's the reason for it? Don't we love reasons? Right? Don't we want reasons? Well, why can't I? Right? That sounds like something my children say to me a lot. Right? Well, why can't I? Well, why am I not allowed to? You got to give me a reason. Well, here's one thing that the Bible doesn't always do for you, to give you a reason, right? God doesn't give you a reason. God doesn't give Paul a reason. You know what we don't see Paul saying? Well, pff, well then I'm not going. Then I'm going to go home. If I can't go the way I want to go, right? If I can't have it my way, right? That's not what we see. We say, oh, okay, can't go west. I'm going to go north, right? So he heads north. Oh, can't go north. What do we do next? So we go down or southwest to to Troas. We don't know why they were forbidden in Asia. We don't know why they were denied in Bithynia. We're just not told. Uh, we can make some guesses. There's some conjecture as to how that could have happened. Certainly the Spirit could have spoken. 
Certainly there could have been some sort of an internal sense of this this isn't where we should be going, a conviction. We find out that that Silas, earlier on in the Bible, we find out that he's he's a prophet. So who knows? Maybe God could have spoken through Silas. Or it could have been an illness. They could have a physical condition that prevented them from moving further in any one of those places. We just don't know. There was no explanation given. But what we know is that God was guiding the journey. One commentator, theologian, says it this way. It's one thing to trust God or to trust God's guidance when it's actually quite obvious what to do next. It's something else entirely when you seem to be going on and on up a blind alley. Hey, ima- imagine these guys, right? Imagine these guys heading out and they, they have a plan. They actually have a plan. They're going to go revisit the very churches that they visited before. This wasn't, this wasn't a, a blind journey. That wasn't what it was supposed to be, right? And so they head out and then they get to a spot and they hit a, hit a roadblock, a divine roadblock. What? Wait a second. I'm on a, I'm a missionary journey, right? And I have a, a roadblock. And then they go north and they hit another roadblock. It, it makes sense to trust God when you can see what the next step is. Oh, okay, well, then, then that's what we'll do. It's something very different when you don't see the next step, isn't it? It's something very different when God closes the door and you don't see the other open door. You don't notice that there's an open door. Or maybe literally the door isn't quite open yet. And you can imagine young Timothy here, right? What did I sign up for? Right? We, we can't even get into the cities that we are trying to get to. Certainly there would have been discouragement. You can imagine it, can't you? Can't you imagine it being a missionary, having this kind of a pretty, a pretty good run on his first, first legs? Sure, there's persecution, but there's a lot of success. And he comes here and he's getting the closed, doors closed left and right. And one thing we can take away from this, and misery loves company, right? And so apparently God's will isn't always that clear, is it? That even the Apostle Paul didn't, didn't quite know exactly where he was going all the time. But God was directing him, and he was following, and he remained faithful. God closed several doors in this case, doors that he desired. He does the same for us, and yet he also opens doors. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. All right, so they're in Troas, and eventually they're going to cross uh, the Aegean Sea and go over to Macedonia. Um, So in in this vision, which is the the second of six visions in the uh, book of Acts, Paul sees a man... They just call him the man of Macedonia. They don't, no, no other indication of who it was. Again, there's conjecture on who this is. Some people think it was Dr. Luke uh, because Dr. Luke shows up at Troas with them. Uh, but we don't know that for certain. And so um, he sees this man. He hears the call to come and to, to help. And this, this call was to, to cross this sea. Uh, going across, uh, again, the Aegean Sea, the, the total voyage here would have been like 150 miles. It would have taken two days to do it. And once they got there, they would have traveled 10 miles inland to Philippi. Right? So, but more than, more than the details of, of how long the journey took, what was happening was that they were leaving um, one continent, in a sense, and moving to another, one country and moving to another. I Meaning they were moving into Europe. 
the gospel was, was leaving this region and moving into an altogether different region. You may say, well, who cares about that? Well, you care about that. <laughs> and I care about that. Why? Because the gospel came to Europe and where did it come next? Right? It came to America. Right? So the, the, the point is, is this, that the gospel is spreading. And even here in the, 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 the book of Acts, we're seeing how the gospel, the, 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 the dots that we trace of the gospel moving from one place to another, we're seeing it and how eventually it would come to you and to me. This is super important. This is super important for how the gospel would spread to the rest of the world. So why were they blocked from going into Asia there? Why were they blocked from going to Bithynia there? Why did God have them go to Troas and then over to Macedonia? Why? Well, you know why. So the gospel could spread to all the ends of the earth, right? That's why. And we don't always know why, but we know that at least. And so the gospel heads west. And here we sit here this morning indebted to their journey but this call comes, right? The call of the Macedonian and George MacDonald says this, nothing makes a man strong like a call for help, right? You can be tired, you can be sleepy, you can be weak and someone calls you for help, right? Your wife calls for help, your, your loved one calls for help, your neighbor calls for help, someone's in need. What do you do? You jump to it, right? You jump to it. You, you, you shake off whatever you have and, and you uh, you put on the strength that only God provides. Verse 10 tells us that they conclude that this is actually what God wants for them to do. Look at it. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. One thing to note here. Uh, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we noted anything. As this story is, is being told, it's they. And now here in verse 10, it's we. The likely explanation for that is Luke joins up in Troas. And so now here, this is, this is what they call, theologians call a, a, a we passage. A passage where, where Luke is present for these events. He's with them. Right? That's why the, the change in pronoun. We see it a couple other times. We'll see it a couple other times in the book. Uh, after Paul had seen the vision, um, they collectively believed. They, they believed that this was what God wanted for them, and then they went. Then they went. Right? This, this was God clearly and sovereignly redirecting time after time Paul's routes. And look, look at it again. We actually see this, what could be called the, the Trinitarian call of God here. By Trinitarian, we mean how, how God is three in one. Very difficult thing to understand. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, right? Look at it with me in um, verse 6, we see that the Holy Spirit spoke and forbid them from going to Asia. In verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, but it's Jesus' Spirit, did not allow them to go in Bithynia. And now here in verse 10, God, that's God the Father, called them to preach the gospel to those in, um, in Philippi eventually. Right? So this, this is how God is at work here. This is, this is a beautiful description of how God is involved in these things. We have said this before about the book of Acts, but Acts is descriptive uh, rather than prescriptive. And what we mean by that is that God does not necessarily work the exact same ways as he always did throughout the Bible. I mean, there are times in the Bible where God communicates and deals with man in, in different fashions. 
and this was still what we call the apostolic age, which means there were, there were apostles and they were um, prophets even during this time in the book of Acts. Well, the apostolic age is over, which means there are no apostles. Okay? There's actually objective ways to know if someone's an apostle. So if someone's running around today calling themselves an apostle, uh, they're lying. Okay? Uh, they are lying. That's not true. No one is an apostle today. So it's prescriptive. It's, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive, meaning we, we don't look at the book of Acts and say, that's exactly how God works today. We don't look at the Old Testament and say, that's exactly how God works today. Because that's not necessarily true. It's not one-to-one. However, there are principles, even within texts like this, that we can get, we can take away. As we think about this idea of God's guidance, as we think of this idea of how God led and directed Paul and Silas and Timothy, you and I can take a number of things away as well. And here are a few. God guides through closed and opened doors. This is actually how God works, right? That God leads us that way. Sometimes we, we might say that kind of in a sense, like the door's closed, the door's open. Who do you think's opening that door? Who do you think's closing that door? God is doing that. That is God leading you. That is a way that God leads us. We see it here where God prevents them in one sense, closes the door, and he prompts them in another sense, he opens them. He directs through both. A.T. Pearson called this double guidance, as in don't go and come. It's two different things. He goes on to say, usually God's guidance is not only negative, Usually God's guidance isn't only no, but it is also positive, as in open door, as in come. He goes down to cite a couple missionaries as examples of this. So some of you might know some of these names. Back in the 1800s, David Livingston, a Scottish missionary who tried to go to China. That was his intent. He was going to China, but God sent him to Africa. He was redirected. William Carey, a little bit before the time of uh, David Livingston, kind of overlapped a little bit, uh, a British missionary who planned to go to the Polynesian, uh, to Polynesia. But God guided him to India, a little bit different. Uh, Adoniram Judson, again, similar time frame that he lived. He went to India first, but then was driven to Burma or to Myanmar, right? So the sense in which we, we, we make a plan, right? We, we want to try to do X, fill in the blank. And yet God guides us. God guides us through, through closing doors and through opening doors, and we need to be sensitive to that. Secondly, God's guidance isn't just circumstantial, but it's also rational or it's sensible, meaning that we're not, we're not just out there guessing. We're not there, not there just saying, well, whatever happens, happens. No, we actually can, can, can know things. We actually can discern things. We can use godly wisdom to come to good conclusion. In verse 10, it says they concluded See it in verse 10. Having seen the vision, they immediately sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This word concluding means bring together or to coalesce or to knit together. Another writer says that it's like putting the pieces of a puzzle together. I like that imagery. Concluding, coming to a conclusion, taking all of what we know, all of what we can discern, all of what we can see and understand and and putting it together, which leads to our third principle. God's guidance is personal and communal. See, Paul and his company 
had endured the, the redirection altogether. Like th- that happened, all of them endured that. But when we come to chapter uh, verse 9, we find out that there's only one person who receives the vision. Right? The rest of the group doesn't receive the vision. Only Paul receives the vision. And they b- agreed with him, but it says that they concluded, that they all were part of this concluding together that they should go, that this was actually God's will for them. Yes, we are to study and examine, but doing that with other godly people is a, is a principle of understanding God's will. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, where there is no guidance, people, the people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. It requires a measure of humility to bring other people into your decision-making, doesn't it? In order for there to be a communal effort, in order for there to be a decision reached about something, bringing other people in is required, but that involves the humility to ask. Ask for, for, for someone else's opinion and someone else's wisdom. And finally, God's guidance comes gradually and unpredictably. Gradually and unpredictably. Again, we've said this before. Paul's original plan was significantly different than what ended up happening. It was pretty unpredictable. And it didn't happen all at once, right? God didn't say to Paul, here's your route. I mean, let me just lay it all out for you. Google Maps, like you see the whole, the whole, the whole route. That's not what he did. He went, he went place by place, stop by stop. This reminds us that we walk not by sight, but by faith. Sometimes you and I may feel like we're getting nowhere. One pastor likens this to, to going up a mountain. And you're going back, there's, there's switchbacks back and forth. You kind of feel like, are we even going anywhere? It feels like we're just going back and forth. Until you get to a clearing. Until you get to a vantage point where you can look back and say, oh, okay, we are making progress. We actually are going somewhere. We see the big picture. Sometimes life can feel that way. What we know is that God's plan and his timing are perfect. We know that. And if we believe that God is who he says he is, and you would affirm this, that he is sovereign and that he is ruler, right? So if we believe that, we would also then say this, if we knew what the sovereign king knew, then we believe that what the sovereign king is doing is what is best. Right? But we don't always know that. And that's why we walk by faith. Isaiah 55 says that of God, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways. For the heavens are as high as the earth, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than yours, my thoughts than your thoughts. So we know of God. He shows us this with Paul and Silas, we know it in our own life that he is trustworthy. What he does, he does for his glory and for our good. So our first step then is to follow him, right? to follow what he's already revealed. You want to know God's will? Start, start with following what, what he's already revealed. Right? That, that's a starter. Start with following the, the Bible. Start with actually knowing what God has said and let's do that. The way God's already communicated to you what his word has already told you to do. Let's start by doing that and see where God leads from there. Psalm chapter 37, verse five says, commit our way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Proverbs three, five and six, trust in the Lord, how? With all your heart, 
Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then here's the promise, and he will make straight your paths. Maybe uh, this morning you have a decision in front of you. Maybe you're looking for what God might have for you or what the next step is for you today. Paul experienced setbacks. He experienced closed doors, all by the sovereign hand of God. The setbacks in your life, the closed doors in your life, are not that God somehow is mad at you, Christian. He's getting you back. He's not giving you something that you think you deserve or something that's good for you. Not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's a good father who loves you, who wants good for you, has a will for you. As he had it for Paul, he has it for you. And by those closed and open doors, by those redirections, by that gradual and unpredictable guidance, he's moving you in the way that he would have you to go. So as we seek God's guidance, we can say with the missionary David Livingston these words, with Christ, without Christ, not one step. With him, anywhere. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us? We have seen how you guided Paul, Silas, Timothy, how you've made straight their paths, even through closing doors and opening doors, how in your wisdom and your sovereignty and your rule, your will was accomplished and was being accomplished, as we will continue to see as they move further inland, how you had a plan for them from the beginning. God, we don't want to go one step without you. So God, before we even leave this morning, we, we say with this missionary, without you, we don't want to go one step, but with you, we'll go anywhere. Not for, for our glory, but for yours. We pray that you would be glorified now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.